Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, I want to focus this week on a recent column that you wrote for PJ Media. The opening paragraph in that piece contains this passage, quote, We seem to be living in a chaotic age akin to the mid-1930s of cynicism and skepticism. Government, religion, and popular culture are corrupt and irrelevant, and the world order of the last 70 years has all but collapsed, close quote. That piece carries the title Weimar America. That, of course, is a reference to Weimar Germany. Before we get into sort of the parallels, for listeners for whom the phrase Weimar Germany is maybe only a dim memory from a history class, characterize that era for us. Well, in the late 20s and 1930s, there was a little town in Germany called Weimar and it was the government that emerged from the humiliation of the Versailles Treaty in Germany. And then uh, there was some success but then the Great Depression hit and then Germany tried to pay off its uh, war obligations by inflating the currency. So you had hyperinflation, you had an economic depression, you lost – they had lost about 15 percent of the German landmass uh, after to Poland and Eastern Europe and France. So there was a sense that nationalism that was over with, that there was a lot of socialist, fascist, communist movements. Popular culture was, was the escape. So the Berlin Cabaret was sort of um, wide open. Uh, there was a lot of things that ha we've never seen since in Germany, whether it was gay rights or um, – experimentation and art music sometimes in some ways it was it was like our own society it was very wide open and in some case creative but it wasn't stable and there was a corrective to it that was disastrous all right i realize this is going to be a little like taking batting practice for you yeah. but let's just survey some of the aspects of american life where you're seeing signs of this kind of instability and we'll start with one that was the focus of one of our more recent podcasts American higher education, what do we yeah. see in there? Well, I mean, we see these studies, hyphenated courses, leisure studies, ethnic studies, environmental studies, and then we see the disappearance of classical courses in philosophy, English, science. And the result of that is that we're getting a therapeutic curriculum and a student who combines the worst of all worlds. He's arrogant because he's highly politicized. He's affluent usually, but he's also in debt and then he's ignorant. And so we're, we're pouring out each year hundreds of thousands of students from a university experience in which they didn't learn anything and they're not prepared for a job. They're not going to make a good income. They're very angry and they're very attuned to what Bernie Sanders says, free this, free that, free, free that. And it's a static economy and they're angry. And of course, on campus, whether it's a microaggression or it's a safe space or it's a trigger warning, we've turned the student into a child. So we have the worst, again, the worst of both worlds. We have a very angry student who thinks nothing of disrupting a lecture or calling a professor a name or swearing at somebody, but then retreats into the fainting couch as soon as he's challenged. And I, I've never seen anything like it. In the 60s, we had people who were affluent, but they 
were Marxists, but they acted like they were poor. So they had v- VW vans and grunge jeans and old sandals and no socks. But today we have people who are really broke because of they have no net worth, but they're masquerading. I mean, they're, they have rock climbing walls and latte and iPhones and Priuses, but they have a veneer of wealth. So it doesn't make any sense. There's no consistency on campus. And I think everybody's lost respect for professors, administrators. Nobody believes if you talk to a Harvard student, he knows much about anything when he graduates. You mentioned Bernie Sanders there. The Democratic Party is actually one of the institutions that you focused on in this column. Between Bernie Sanders and the two Clintons, you've got three forces at work there that are all in some manner taking us into territory that would have seemed implausible just a couple of years back. Explain the dynamics at work there. Well, we live in a society in which 45 to 48 percent of the people don't pay any income tax, federal income tax. And the people who do, if they live in a state like California or Massachusetts and you add in Obamacare and you add in uh, payroll deductions for Social Security and Medicare, they can easily pay 60 percent of their income to the federal government. And yet the mantra of this young Bernie Sanders movement is that it's not fair that that certain people are getting away with murder. And maybe they are the very, very one, 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 one percent, but most of the upper middle class is being taxed and regulated to death. And yet in this surreal message that Bernie Sanders says is that all our problems would be solved if we could just go out and take more money from these people, the productive upper middle class. And that's the only way you're going to get it and then give it to you people. And then Bernie Sanders himself, who honeymooned in the Soviet Union, really never had a job until he was 40 uh, is emblematic of the whole movement. So I, I think everybody's dream is to get a, a BA in sociology and then go work at Starbucks uh, for $10 an hour and then work at a nonprofit as an intern for no pay and then be angry that when you see somebody drive by with a nicer car than your used BMW, it, it, that's, it's incoherent, decadent, um, unsustainable, any adjective will do. And on the other side of the ledger, the next thing that you point to is Donald Trump. And you write in this piece, quoting you here, Donald Trump is probably not a serious student of the European 1930s. You say a sentence or two later though, but his remedy is 1930s to the core. Explain that. Well, I don't want to go and use the H word uh, or the M word for Mussolini, but the corrective to the Weimar stagnation was somebody who got up and said, I'm going to make Germany, I'm going to make Spain, I'm going to make Japan, I'm going to make uh, Italy great again. And you just, and we're going to have no ideology. It's going to be sort of a nationalism and a socialism. And we're going to go after certain people who are bloodsuckers. And we all know who they were. And in addition to them, there were the aristocrats, the Wall Street, the bankers, the international financiers. And I'm going to give everybody national health care. I'm going to do all this. I'm going to make us strong. Nobody's going to pick on us anymore. Nobody's going to question our, our, our uh, abilities. Uh, we're, not, we're not going to take any stuff off people overseas. And that was a very appealing message. And the people who advanced that message had two things going for them. They didn't have to be very specific because everybody hated the Weimar mentality in Europe. They just felt that. It was an attack on religion. It was an attack on tradition. It was an attack on everything that they that had 
existed before World War I and had shaped their lives. The next item that's in your crosshairs in this piece is American foreign policy under the Obama administration. Victor Barack Obama was supposed to be a stabilizing force who would reestablish America's good standing around the globe. We are probably close enough to the end of his presidency to issue at least preliminary judgment on that front. What's the verdict? Well, China has <laughs> China is creating artificial islands and then telling everybody it has territorial jurisdiction so it can adjudicate commerce on the entire South China Sea and Russia is Unbound, it can do whatever it wants. The only reason it, it does or does not do an aggressive act it depends on whether it's bored or tired. But it doesn't have any fear of any consequences should it do so. The Middle East is a mess for me. There were there were two or three emblematic things in the Obama administration. One was, of course, the red lines, but not so much the red lines themselves that he didn't enforce, but that. The fact that when he did not enforce them, he blamed – he said he never set them. He blamed the United Nations or the U.S. Congress for setting them. And that really set a really disturbing – I think a, a disturbing precedent. And then uh, the other thing was that when you uh, have the world going up in flames, the solution to it is to go to Cuba and – Try to open relations with this little tiny country that is basically a gulag and is not relevant in international affairs. But um, that doesn't seem like – it's almost as if I can't deal with the real world, so I'm going to try to find these iconic little you know, half measures, close down Guantanamo by executive order because I really don't know what to do about Iran. I don't know what to do about ISIS. I don't know what to do about Syria. I do not know what to do about China. I don't know what to do about Russia. Uh, I had a special relationship with Turkey and now they hate me more than they ever did an American president. I don't know how to deal with these things, so I'm going to go to Cuba. And that's pretty – that sort of sums it up. Another factor here and one I don't think that we've discussed on the show before – Pope Francis, who you write here, I'm quoting you, seems not to have transcended the parochial time and space of Peronist Argentina. Unpack that for us. Well, I think he believes that uh, there's something – remember what Peronism was. It was a, a half-baked mixture of traditional Argentine Latin American values, Catholicism, imported Francoism, all in a leftist share of the wealth – spread the wealth milieu. So I think Fran Francis came out of that as a young man and he thinks that the, as a pope, he he's a singular figure and an autocratic figure and he can run around the globe and then lecture particular governments that they should do this and they shouldn't do that and they need to support the poor. But he doesn't really want to get into the issue. So if he goes into Mexico and he starts attacking the United States about its border policy – Francis is not an empiricist. He never says, well, wait a minute. Who took more immigrants, legal and illegal, than any other country in the world over the last decade? The United States. Which country in their constitution has uh, provisions forbidding people coming that would upset the racial mix of the country? The United States? No. Mexico. And which country cynically exports its own people so it can earn $25 billion in remittances and even goes so far as to issue a comic book because it assumes that its own citizens that it's exporting are illiterate. Mexico. So Mexico – and yet he's in Mexico and he has a perfect opportunity to tell the Mexican government don't export poor people and cause this problem. Instead, he attacks the United States. 
and he thinks that people are going to listen. I, I don't know why, but he's got this mishmash of leftism and and liberation theology and nationalism and uh, a sense of I don't know messianic uh, global role in the way that Perón did. I don't think it's going to end well for him. I, I like him. I think in some ways he's trying to do a good job, but he's doing a lot of damage to the Catholic Church. This column ends with a meditation on sort of the intersection of race and popular culture in which you touch on the Oscars and Beyonce's halftime show at the Super Bowl and Kanye West. This is not necessarily the normal VDH portfolio, but I know you think this has – broader social implications. So give us the readout well, there. Well, if you were to say that the Super Bowl is sort of the national cultural moment in the United States, the Super, Super Bowl's halftime festivities, and then you had Beyonce say there, and what's her shtick? She's going to be dressed up in Mexican bandoleros uh, as if she's got an automatic weapon with bullets, and then she's going to evoke a thug and felon who was killed by San Francisco police in an armed confrontation who just stabbed somebody and make him an icon. And then she's going to rail about racism as she has 30 black singers and not one white person in her entourage. And then her message is that the Black Panthers, which is an abjectly racist, racist, violent organization, is she's going to romanticize that. And that's all going to be on national TV and how much she does not like the, the racial black-white relationship, and then she's going to dye her hair blonde in, in an act of cultural appropriation. So the whole thing was surreal, I, th I thought. And when I look at racial relations around the United States in the era of Obama, it's every particular group now is separate and everybody has a claim. So there was nobody nominated the Oscar who was African-American, even though over the last 30 years they have higher nomination rate than their percentage in the population. Therefore, the Oscars must be boycotted and racist. The Grammys, uh, I just looked at the statistic. Over the last 50 years, 48% of the nominees were so-called white. Suddenly, are we going to say, well, why shouldn't they have been 70% or 50% or 60%? And why were African-Americans nominated even in going back to the 20, uh, 50s at 20% when they're only 12% of the population? I mean, we really want to go down that road where we're in a Lebanon where we trade percentages of governance between Shia and Christians and Sunnis. We can do that. And I think that's where we're going. But it's not a sustainable trajectory at all. And I think – it, to me, it, the whole Weimar idea on race is summed up, and here's how it's summed up. You go to the New York Times or the Guardian or any major news outlet online. There's a story about a violent crime. Somebody's beaten up in the subway, some woman's rape, and they don't tell you the race, class, gender of the perpetrator unless he's probably some old white guy. And then it's very politically correct. Everything's wonderful. And then for some strange reason, they print the comments. Then you read the comments and it's out of the 1940s Confederate South or the 1860s Confederacy. They're the most vile, racist things that you can imagine. So there's the disconnect where people are so angry at the political correctness, they go way off in the other directions. And, and in that void is Donald Trump. And we'll close today where your column closes, quoting you again. I wish all this could end well, the antecedent of this being everything we've just talked about. But history's corrective to 1930s chaos was a different and deadlier sort of chaos, and so ours may well be too. 
Victor, draw the line for me between cultural instability and the broader threat that you're implying there. Well, I think we've already started to see it a little bit with Obama that we don't really have a federal law anymore in the sense that if he, he wants to do something about immigration or health care, he can suspend a mandate, he can suspend immigration law. And he set the precedent. So if a guy like Trump were to be elected, I think he could just say – and he's basically said already in the campaign, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to do that. And that's regardless of whether there's a Congress or not or a Supreme Court. So I think in this chaos, when people don't rever traditions and consensuality and conciliation and they don't have any vision for where we want to go in a constitutional system, they're just going to act uh, individually and autocratically. And that's where we're going. I, I really think that's going to be the proposed solution to all this mess is somebody's going to take an iron hand and say, I'll clean it up. Just trust me. All right. That's all the time that we have for today. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.